Well, welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Doug. I've been gone for a little bit, but I'm glad to be back. So I hope you're as happy as I am. Uh, I want to welcome all of you watching online for the first time. And if you're visiting for the first time and you are finally in the room with us, maybe you've been checking us out online, uh, we're glad you are here today. And we are hoping that you will kind of get to know what kind of church we are, uh, focused on Christ and Christ alone. And yet we're a little bit different because our goal is to help you grow and develop your faith. Because in the end, that is what makes the biggest difference in your life. Now, uh, we're in a series over the whole summer called The Parables of Jesus. And today is a parable in Matthew chapter 25 about a wedding. And weddings are meant to be memorable occasions, right? They're supposed to be uh, wonderful. You hire a photographer to capture the moment. And you just want everything to be just right, an experience that will carry with you for all of your years of wedded bliss. You don't want your wedding to be memorable for the wrong reasons. And sometimes that happens. Watch this. I love how the cameraman got it all. picture moment. <laughs> that, those are hilarious. You can go on, you can go on YouTube and you can watch those things for hours and you just feel bad, especially for those brides who spent a year, two years prepping for that moment. And then something happens that makes it memorable for all the wrong reasons. Now, the parable we're going to study today is in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And it's about a wedding, but it's Jesus tells it from the perspective or the kind of the main characters of 10 virgins. So I'm going to read the parable and the verses will be up on the screen for you. And then we're going to kind of dig into it just a little bit. And I, I might have a little commentary as we go along. And the reason we're doing this is because all the parables give us insight into what the kingdom of God is like. And our theme for the whole year is the kingdom of God. Now notice how Jesus starts in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now just so that you know what he's talking about is the lamp he's talking about is this. It's uh, uh, technically they call this a Herodian lamp and basically it was just a little ceramic uh, container and has a hole in the, in the front of it that you could put olive oil in and then it has a wick and the wick kind of comes in and out. I don't know how well you can see that but the, the wick comes in and out, has oil on it, and basically, you know, you just would light that baby up. Let's see if it works. 
and there you go. It acts just like a candle, basically, and it draws the olive oil from the container up the wick. Now, as it burns uh, and consumes the olive oil, if you don't refill this little container, then you, uh, it'll just go out, okay? And watch what happens, okay? He says, now five of them were foolish and five were prudent. And then he tells us why. The foolish took their lamps. They took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they got drowsy and began to fall asleep. But late at night, around midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom has arrived. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And trimming the lamp basically means as you take that wick, you pull it out and you kind of snip the end off it. And that's what keeps it burning. And then he goes on to say, the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered and said, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And then the door was shut. And later the other virgins came as well saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Then Jesus gives us the point. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So everybody knows that this is the point of the parable, and that is you need to be prepared. You need to be alert uh, because we don't know the day or the hour when Christ is going to come, right? So now to understand the meaning of being prepared, we need to kind of see this parable as people who heard it in the first century. Because today when we hear wedding, we think something totally different than what happened in their culture. So let's kind of dig into the historical aspect in the first century of a Jewish wedding to kind of give ourselves a deeper understanding of what they heard when Jesus told this parable. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that weddings were the most important social event for young people. I mean, this was it. And the reason why is because this is the only time when young single men and young single women, which were referred to as virgins, could come together and actually interact and socialize and get to know each other and figure out, you know, do they even like each other? Okay. So this was it. There was no internet back then. I know that's shocking, but there was no internet, okay? There were no dating apps on a cell phone. There was no swiping left or right. There wasn't any profile pictures. Uh, for those of you who are really old, there was no MySpace, <laughs> right? There was, that didn't even... The, 
there were, they were educated separately in Jewish cultures. And so um, as children, they may have interacted, but as they start to get up into that preteen and teen age, when they start to think, okay, we're going to have to get married. The other thing you have to realize is that in their culture, right, getting married and starting a family was the goal. And so the whole society basically revolved around this. The religious ceremonies were uh, uh, overseen and taken care of by the priesthood. But in your family, it was basically, you know, all businesses, all, all livelihoods were family-oriented businesses. And so people would, when you were establishing a new family, that was a big deal. Young men were growing up thinking, man, I want to marry and marry well. And then young women are saying, I want to get married and married well. And you know what's really interesting is even though they had such a massive emphasis on marriage then, today we say, oh, we don't emphasize it that much. But you know, research tells us that 97% of every human being gets married at some point in their life. That's unbelievable. Over 90% still try marriage in some form or another. So it's not a stretch to realize what a big deal it was for this culture. And to be able to be invited to a wedding, if you were a young single woman and a young single man, was a huge deal because this is it, right? This is the place where you go to find out, I mean, are there, I mean, what are the guys like? What are the girls like? Do I like anybody? Do I not like anybody? I mean, this was it. And so the wedding feast, the being invited to it was all about love. It was all about life. It was all about your future. So to miss it was a huge deal. And I mean, it was worse than turning off the Wi-Fi and taking away the cell phone for a teenager, you know? I mean, it was absolute torture to miss this thing. So now what we need to do is kind of to get a deeper understanding of this first century uh, approach and why it was such a big deal is we need to dig into what was a Jewish wedding and how did it work? Well, in a Jewish wedding, there were basically three phases, major phases, okay? And they should pop up here. It was called the uh, Shidukin, the Erosin, and the Nesuin. And these were the three phases. Now, the Jewish wedding was called a Simcha. And a Simcha means joyous occasion. And these three phases took place over the course of approximately two years. So, Finding someone to marry and all this kind of stuff get on. Because this is what it was, is the Shidukin basically was a contract. It's called the marriage contract. And so the father of the bride and uh, the father of the groom would come together. And over the course of about anywhere from nine to 18 months, they would start to hammer out a marriage contract. This is much bigger deal than vows because when you got married, you were joining two families together. So it's not only uh, love, but it was also business because families owned the businesses. And the other thing is that the marriage contract did something very important is it raised the value of women in the culture. 
Okay, and that's its intent. Now, here's an actual marriage contract, much bigger than vows, that uh, is being signed. And once they got to the end of that, they would have, uh, of the Shidukin, they would have a celebration. And the celebration was they would perform the mikvah, and then they would stand under a huda. A mikvah is when the bride, the future bride, future groom would go off and they would get baptized, basically. They'd be immersed in water and then they would come up. And once they had been immersed, then they would come together. And then they would stand under a thing called a huda. And this is a huda. And it's got four posts and a little covering. And what it does is it symbolized the building or the making of a new family, a new home. So it kind of represents uh, a new house. So once this happened, they did the mikvah and they stood under the huda, is that then the groom, future groom, he would give the wife, a, his bride, a precious gift only from him to her, which over time became a ring, right? It was precious. The bride price would be paid. And so now they were legally married in the eyes of the culture. However, they haven't consummated their marriage. Okay. And so they entered into the erusin, which is a one-year preparation. Now, this is really interesting because you know what they did during that one year? Is that the groom had a very important job. Because of the huda, he was required to go to his father's house or to his inherited land, uh, his claim, and he was to build his new bride a home. Okay, Now, it could be a complex home or it could just be a room right? On the father's house, depending upon the wealth of the family. But he had to go and build her a house or build her a place to go, right? So some ladies are thinking, man, I just said yes, went on a honeymoon, man. I should have done a little bit more, right? So, but that's how they did it. Well, guess what? During that year, I think that the bride and her family had a harder job, Okay, and the reason why it usually took a year is because she had to go and not only help procure items for the new home in order for them to be able to survive, but she had to make her dress. Now, today, all dresses in Orthodox weddings are made out of linen, and they can go down, they can just buy one, but back then, you could, if you made it out of linen, linen is one of the most complex textiles that you can make. There's over nine highly complex steps that you have to go through. It takes forever because you're taking the flax reed and you have to soak it and beat it out and put it together. It's just crazy difficult. Sometimes if they didn't have the money, they, they initially they would make it out of wool. I mean, you had to shear sheep, you had to treat the wool, you had to spin it, you had to put it on a loom, then you had to put it on a, uh, you had to make a textile or fabric. Then you had to make a uh, pattern. Then you had to cut out the pattern. And I mean, so to make this thing for this young girl would take a long time. And it was hand sewn, right? And all this dress was being made over the course of this young lady's life when her body is changing the most rapidly, right? So you can know that there was a lot of taking on and putting on, taking off, putting on, taking off. Oh, we got to make sure this is fit, you know? And there's a, there's a Hebrew phrase, you know, and it's, uh, well, how did it go? It goes, moshuka. Uh, and so you can hear a lot of Jewish moms saying that, and it simply means stand up straight, 
right? <laughs> stand up straight, stand up straight. You know, I'm trying to fit this thing. So this is going on and this is called the Erosene. And so it is a time of preparation. They're not sitting around over the course of 12 months going, well, you know, everything's done. You know, we're just sitting around waiting. No, they, it was busy, busy, busy time working up to the Nisuin. And what's interesting is the Nisuin is the part of the wedding ceremony process that Jesus is talking about in this parable. So let me tell you about the Nisuin. Is Nisuin means to take, okay, to claim. So, oops. The virgins are not going to be happy. <laughs> At least five of them. Okay. So, because that's exactly what happens when you run out of oil. So what, what the Nisuin means to take, but it comes from a Hebrew root word, which means to lift up. So it's not to take and possess. It's to take and like honor right? It's to take and lift up. If you've ever seen some Jewish weddings, you know what they'll do at the Nisuin is they will put the bride in a chair. And what do they do with her in the chair? They pick her up and they carry her around. See, it's to honor and to lift up as they're dancing and having joy. So the Nisuin is about coming to claim. Now, uh, I, I hope there's not a lot of little ears here because this is what they did is that the dad of the groom during the uh, Irusin is talking to the father of the bride, right? And what they would do is because the Nisuin was all about consummating the marriage, okay? And so what they would do is they would coordinate and they would say, we, we have to wait until she cycles. And then two weeks after she cycles, or 12 days after she cycles, right? Is when we're gonna, I'm gonna send him to claim his bride. So you know exactly what these brides are doing. I mean, women know their cycle, right? And then what we've learned in biology in the future is when are women the most fertile? They're usually only able to get pregnant about three days out of the month, okay? And it's during that time, somewhere in that window about, two weeks after they cycle, right? So they're coordinating this and the groom could not go get his wife until his dad says, go get her. So, so what would happen is she would, she's sitting there going, okay, I know it's like on this day or the next day. So she gets all of her girlfriends, right? Who became known as ladies in what? Waiting. Okay, so they're waiting with her and they're sitting there, you know, they're having a slumber party, you know, and, you know, they're eating baklava or whatever, you know, they're doing, they're doing each other's hair, they're trying on the dresses, they're doing all this, when's he coming? I don't know, when's he coming? I don't know, I don't know, my dad won't tell me anything, you know, he's going to come, he's going to come. And so they're all sitting there waiting and they get drowsy and their lamps go out because they fall asleep. So how would they know when the bridegroom was coming. Well, for some reason, and I personally think this is my addendum, is that the smoked mutton was not ready yet. And you, you never start a party until the meat is ready, 
right? You got to have it ready. So it wasn't quite, he goes, I, I mistimed my, my smoking of the roast mutton. And so it's not quite ready. And so what happens though, uh, I, I have a feeling that some dads were just like, you know, dad, it's noon. I want to go get her. Nope. Dad, it's two o'clock. Nope. Just for the fun of it, you know? And then the guy falls asleep and he goes and he kicks and goes, time to go. So the first thing that would happen is he would wake, he would get ready to go. His entourage would stand up and one of the guys would have a horn. It's called a shofar. And he would stand up. And when he left the house to go get his bride from her house, he would blow the shofar. And it sounded something like this. That's a real shofar right there. That's what it sounds like. Woo! Isn't this fun? Kind of get into it. So anyway, so what he would do is he would do that. And as they're marching through town to get her, it's a big parade, you know, a big spectacle. The guys are laughing and singing, you know, and, and they're blowing the shofar, right? Blow the shofar. And so everybody else who lives in the town feels like you feel now on the 4th of July at midnight when people are still firing off their fireworks going for crying out loud, why don't they just go to bed? And then, and then the wife will lean over and say, oh, it's so romantic, you know, I mean, that's another wedding, you know, so they're blowing this thing. And so people are going, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. So they stand up, right? The women wake up. And then what they do is they put a little bit of olive oil. They trim the wick. See if I can trim it right. They add a little bit of oil to their lamp. And then they light it up. And then what they do when they have this is they're carrying it with them and they're dancing through the city streets back to the bridegroom's and the bride's new home where this house was built. So they're dancing in the street. And when you're dancing in the street, you know, and people are like, this is awesome. Other people in the town or the village would come out and they would celebrate with you and they, woohoo, go get them, tiger. This is awesome. New family. Woohoo. So they're cheering and they're jumping into all this because then when you would get back finally to the new house, right, only the invited guests could go in. Because once you went in, it was, the Nisuin was a celebration of the consummation. So after a very short ceremony, you know what they would do is then they would send the couple off into their new bedroom. And your whole family and all your invited guests would stay there in the compound or in the house from anywhere from three to seven days <laughs> partying with you. That's like taking your family on your honeymoon with you. <laughs> I think our new way of doing it is just slightly better, but not back then. It was a party. So you're going, you know, you're, you're tromping along, you have this parade and the shofar is blowing. Can I get a shofar blow? We need a shofar blow. And you're marching along and everybody's dancing along and you get to the final place to get in. And guess what? What's your ticket to get in? How are you known? You have a lamp that is burning. Right? You have a lamp. And so that is your 
VIP pass. And no one else can get in because you're not known. Now that you understand kind of how all this works, doesn't it make so much more uh, a deeper sense that when Jesus says, be prepared, we understand what we need to do and be to be prepared. During this one year preparation, there was a lot of work going on. The building of a house, the making of a dress. You had to develop a grinding stone. You had to be able to build an, I mean, all of these things that you needed just to have a house. It was a lot more complicated than buying a toaster. And remember, when we started this entire series, we started with the parable of the wheat and tares. Do you remember that parable where uh, a man planted his field full of wheat and it started to sprout, but his enemies came in in the middle of the night and planted weeds or tares all throughout it? And what happened is the, the, the workers of the field get up and said, oh, your enemy is sowing weeds. Should we go pull the weeds? And what does he say? The, the landowner, he says, don't pull the weeds because you will disrupt the roots of the good wheat, right? And this really helps us understand this, how do we live in this world with weeds all around us? I called it the great in-between. And Jesus is saying is that during this great in-between in this is that everything in your life right now is about preparing yourself for when the bridegroom blasts the trumpet, the shofar, the ram's horn. You see, I don't know where you're at in your life. But this parable is appropriate for you. If you are starting high school or you're starting college or maybe you just graduated from college, you're starting a job. This is a time for you to be preparing for God and what he is going to do when he calls you home. Now is a time to prepare. Oftentimes we look at high school, we look at college or when we start a new job. Oh, it's just a stepping stone to something else. Well, maybe it's a process of growth, but right now, right here is your opportunity to prepare. And that means grow and deepen your faith. Maybe you're starting a new job. Maybe you're looking uh, towards moving to a different job, or maybe you're looking at retirement. Whenever that happens, whenever you're in that stage, guess what? It is you preparing for when the shofar blasts and the bridegroom comes to claim his bride, which is the church. Maybe your kids are starting school. Maybe your kids are launching and you're becoming an empty nester. Maybe you're in that time of waiting for grandkids. I don't know anybody like that. Um, wherever you're at. It's a time of preparation. You see, being a part of the kingdom of God is looking at every stage of your life as a time for preparation. So how do we do that? How do I look at whatever stage of life I'm in? You know, whether um, you're an empty nester, you're looking at retirement, you're thinking about getting married, maybe you're single, you know, maybe you're single again, and you're thinking, I don't know what, if that's ever going to uh, uh, open up another door for me or not. Instead of looking towards what you think needs to happen to make you happen, happy, look at where you're at right now as an opportunity to prepare for the most important thing of your life, Okay. So, so let's dig in and look at what, what did the foolish virgins do? If getting married 
and seeing the opportunity to meet other young men and influence their father. Hey, dad, please go talk to Joe's dad over there because that I like Joe. Okay, guess what? They neglected the point of what makes their life full and happy. They just ignored it. The most important event in their life that has the biggest influence on their happiness, they neglected it simply because they didn't bring enough oil. When, when we overlook the opportunity of any situation that we are in to be prepared and to grow and develop, guess what? We are neglecting the overall point of our lives. And the end result of that is we are robbed of the joy, the happiness, the blessing, and even the success that God can bring into our lives. You know, the point of your life is all about Jesus when you've come to know him. And so see every stage of your life as an opportunity to prepare for the greatest point of your life. You see, life here on earth is more difficult than you can ever imagine. It is dark. But you know what wise people do is they prepare. They bring a little oil to light a lamp in the darkness. Don't mistake details with direction. Sometimes we feel like, man, I don't know what the point of my life is. Well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know who I'm supposed to marry, how many kids, what job I'm supposed to have, what house I'm supposed to live in, what color is my kitchen, and what kind of tile I want in my living room. That, that, that's details. Direction is what? Am I loving God? Am I loving people? Am I learning to serve? You see, you don't, you'll never have all the details ironed out, Right? But what you do know is I am going in the right direction. And that's how I am preparing for the ultimate point of my life. The second thing I think is really helps us uh, prepare is understanding being prepared is not difficult or time consuming. I mean, think about it. All they had to do was bring a little bit of oil in a flask with them. I mean, every single house in a Jewish culture has olive oil in it, right? It's like saying, mom, can I have some salt? Take it to school. Or mom, there's a food drive at school. Can I have a can of beans, right? She opens it up. What kind? You know, you always can have a can to take for the food drive. Every Jewish house has oil in it. All you have to do is put a little in a flask and take it with you. Being prepared in this moment, wherever you're at for the point and purpose of your life, isn't time consuming and it's not difficult. The journey of faith is all about that. It's about taking one step at a time towards who you are in Christ. It's taking one step towards who God has called you to be in Christ. Take the time to know your new identity and then take a step towards it. You see, being a part of a redemptive community, a church, is so important because you constantly receive clarity on who you're called to be, your new identity in Christ, while getting an ongoing acceptance when you fall short. If you can find a church filled with perfect people, don't go, because you'll ruin it. I can't join one of those. I just wouldn't fit. I'd make a mess of it, right? You see, when you're a part of a community of faith, what you are is you're a part of a group of people who help you. And the whole point is we try to help each other when we're at our worst, not when we're at our best. 
Being prepared in whatever situation you are is not difficult. It's easy to take five minutes and spend time in prayer. It's easy to take 10 minutes and read the words of Christ in the scriptures. It's easy to develop friendships with people that you like and are on the same journey of faith that you are. We live in a wonderful country that makes it easy to get up and go to any church focused on Jesus that you would like to go to. There's so many options. Being prepared isn't difficult or time-consuming. And if we ignore that, the point of our lives, we do so at our own peril. You know, there's an old Greek story about Sisyphus. And Sisyphus was a king. He was a philosopher. Many say he was the founder of the city Corinth. And in this old Greek mythology, what he did is he was so uh, witty and he was so wise and smart that he was able to cheat death. So Hades' death got angry and he cursed him. And what he did is he cursed him with rolling a rock up a hill. And as soon as it got to the top, it would roll down on him and kill him. And then he would wake up at the bottom of the hill with a rock. And then he'd have to roll it up the hill and then it'd fall back. And it was an endless cycle. And the whole point of the story was it was complete meaningless. Rick Warren tells a story in his book, Purpose Driven Life, about when you live without meaning or purpose in your life, Life becomes absolutely directionless, lack of hope, and a burden. He tells a story of how there was a time in one of the internment camps for the Jews under German or Nazi occupancy where they made the, the men take rocks that were broken and move them over to one side of the field. And once they got to that side of the field, they made them pick up all those rocks and move them back to the other side of the field. And then the next week, they had to do it all over again. He says in this book, Purpose Driven Life, at the end of that period of time of about six to eight weeks, the Jewish laborers were taunting the guards to shoot them and kill them because they were being tortured with meaningless labor. Oftentimes as a pastor, people are asking me, pastor, why is it that everything is going down in our society, but suicide is going up? Why is there so much anger and hatred in our society? Why is there so much division? Why is there so much road rage and drug abuse and uh, drug overdoses? Why is there so much uh, theft and rioting and burning? These are symptoms of the most deepest spiritual problem that human beings have. And that is when we live without purpose and we don't know who we are, we become animals and beasts. The greatest hope for your life, the greatest hope for the world in which we live is when we live for the point and purpose of our life. And you know what the point and purpose of our life is? It is to know Jesus and to live in his kingdom. When, when you live in his kingdom, you do things that don't contradict the point of your life. It helps you become who you're called to be. When you live in the kingdom, guess what? You grow to maturity and strength. So you're not manipulated. You can't be discouraged. You can't be overwhelmed because you know who you are and you're living according to the most important values that you can have. Kingdom values. 
Let's remember that the parable of the 10 virgins is all about being prepared. And being prepared is about learning to live in the kingdom of God. Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord Jesus, it's good to be back. Amen.